Our Father, we give thanks to you through Jesus Christ, your Son, who has given us the joy of a new year. And even though there have been many hard things through 1997, and certainly hard things will come in 1998, we have that deep down sense of joy and contentment because we are yours. And even though, Lord, uh, many have left this life during the past year, and certainly others of our friends and acquaintances will in the coming year, we are still one in you, and we will all be together eternally, and we look forward to that day, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, and that eternal time that we'll spend together celebrating Christ and all that he did for us. Father, I pray that you will focus us in our thoughts this morning upon the word, that you will be our teacher through the Spirit of God. We ask that throughout this complex this morning in every class in the service that is occurring concurrently, that you will be vitally present, that you'll be accomplishing your grand plan and your great purpose in every one of our lives. And through us, you will touch others through this new year. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 35th chapter of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 35. We will very shortly complete the book of Numbers and we will begin looking at the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last of the Pentateuch, the last of the writings of Moses. Much of Deuteronomy is repetitive of things we've already studied, so we'll be kind of skipping through it, but we'll be touching on those passages and those issues and events which are, are critical and crucial, I think, uh, to teaching of the Word and then, of course, to the uh, work of the life of Moses. We have great accompaniment this morning, so I hope you'll understand this is a very dramatic topic we'll be dealing with today, and we've got the music to go with it. I'd like to read the first eight verses of Numbers 35. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession cities to live in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. And the cities shall be theirs to live in. And their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. And the pasture lands of the cities, which you shall give to the Levite, shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. You shall also measure outward, uh, outside the city, on the east side, two thousand cubits, on the south side, two thousand cubits, on the west side, two thousand, and on the north side, two thousand, with the city in the center. This shall become theirs as pasture lands for the city. And the cities which you shall give to Levite shall be the six cities of refuge, which shall, you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. In addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All of the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities, together with their pasture lands. As for the cities you shall give for possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger, and you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession, which he inherits. Scripture has a great deal of detail in it, particularly in the Old Testament dealing with the history of the Israelite nation. A lot of these details, as we read them, do not sound particularly devotional at the moment. But as you look at it in detail and read it within context, you find there's a great deal of truth here, which is appropriate even to our lives today. As you 
As you remember, we have been tracing the life of Moses, uh, beginning, of course, from his birth at the beginning of Exodus, and moving through the event called the Exodus, which comprises the last 40 years of Moses' life, and, of course, is the high point of his life, about which we have the most detail. And that event, or description of that event, comprises the bulk of the book of Exodus and, of course, the remaining books of the Pentateuch. Only the book of Genesis precedes that and was given by revelation to Moses by God, possibly at Mount Sinai or at some point subsequent to that, and he recorded that by divine revelation. And, of course, the entire Pentateuch was given by God as divine revelation. One of the unfortunate things you find today is that many of your mainline Protestant uh, seminaries and, and Catholic seminaries and so forth uh, deal not only with the Pentateuch but with much of the Old Testament as if it were nothing but a human production and therefore capable of error and capable of being distorted and perverted in ways that we could only assume that within there somewhere you'll find some grains of truth but the bulk of it is just a story to, to be enjoyed. I do not take that approach because I feel that, as Peter tells us, the entire scripture is divinely inspired. And even though it's been preserved down through the centuries uh, by the constant writing and rewriting and translation, I think God has superintended that. And I, I believe that we have in our hands today the truth. And I believe that we can read this with uh, understanding and know that what we're reading is what happened and these are the descriptions that are true. There are some passages which are um, difficult to understand. There are some statements in Scripture that seem to be conflicting. But uh, I think given greater study of the Word, most of those conflicts are worked out. There's one a bit of difficulty in the passage we just read that I'll just make note of. It's, it's, it doesn't bother anything, but it creates a little bit of difficulty for the commentators because commentators are supposed to write a commentary and they're supposed to explain everything. And sometimes they come to a place which is a real conundrum. And, and there is no uh, obvious answer to it. Uh, to the people at the time, they understood it. There was no problem. But to us who live uh, 4,000 years after Moses' time or 3,500 years and live in a totally different environment with Western way of thinking, often we, we have a hard time grasping some of these, uh, of these factors. But this in no way obscures the truth which is important for us to learn. What we discover in this passage this morning is that unlike the other tribes, the other 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi was not to be given a region within Canaan in which to dwell. But as we read, they were to be given 48 cities scattered throughout the domains of the other 12 tribes. So they'd be kind of like scattered across the entire uh, land of occupation. And I believe that the reason for this distribution that this distribution at least served for two functions and, and possibly others you could think of. But one reason for this seems to be that by scattering the Levites, you reduce the opportunity for them to be preoccupied with wealth, for them to be preoccupied with empire building, for them to be preoccupied with developing a center from which they could vie with the other tribes. You know, we, we as human beings are naturally competitive. And I don't care who you are or what situation you're in, you're probably going to think that this group is better than that group, or we're better than they are. And, you know, it's really difficult to not be an ugly American when you travel overseas. 
not because other people are inferior, but we always contrast other people and their culture with our culture, and we think ours is superior because that's what, that's what we're accustomed to. And of course, other people are ugly too when they come to America in many ways. So th this would be a natural feeling for the Levites to want to be rivals of the other tribes. You know, our tribal land is better than your tribal land, you know, kind of an attitude. This would prevent that from happening because they wouldn't have a tribal land. They had to travel through other tribal lands to get to their city. And they couldn't leave it without traveling through another tribal land. And thus there would be no power base. Those of you who are familiar with English history will know that in the 11th century, William of Normandy became William the Conqueror as he uh, established control of England by invasion. And one of the things he did to establish his power in the newly conquered England was to give out fiefs in small portions. The common medieval method by which you rewarded your followers and built up a power base was to give a fief, a piece of property, to someone who would then support you as the lord of the land. Well, what he did, instead of giving somebody a huge area so they could be duke so-and-so and count so-and-so, he gave everybody who was a duke or count a small piece here, a small piece there, a small piece somewhere else, so they didn't have any one large land base from which to be a rival to the king. And I don't know whether he got that from the scattering of the, of the tribal cities for the Levites here or not, but certainly it worked for him and it, and it worked for the Levites too. The Levites never really become competitive with the other tribes in, in the sense of wealth or power. Secondly, I believe that it would create a situation where the whole land would be salted with those whose lives focused around the service of God at the tabernacle. So there would be living within every tribal land those whose commitment was to annually at their month or their week to go down to the tabernacle, carry out their function for their period of time, and then come back home, who are constantly refreshed by their service to the Lord, and thus their kind of their glow would be in that region. And so all the other tribes would be constantly reminded that they belong to the Lord God. It's one of the values of going to church that we often overlook. Going to church and rubbing shoulders with other believers rubs off on us. And, and if we think we can go off and live like a bunch of hermits and never have anything to do with the rest of the people of God, we've got you know, another thing coming. We're badly mistaken. Yeah, I can have fellowship with God, and I can say the word, and I can pray to God, but fellowship with believers is an essential thing that God has built in to the nature of the church. And, and, and that's one of the values of coming together. And so it would be for these who would be scattered throughout all the other tribes. They would constantly be reminding them and convicting them, if necessary, of the fact that they, were belo they belonged to Yahweh, that He was their God, that their allegiance was to Him. Now, verses 4 and 5 are a bit of a difficulty because they make two different statements. One says that a thousand cubits around the cities was to be pasture land. The other says two thousand cubits. No commentator has uh, come up with what I could say is, oh, the obvious answer to this problem. <laughs> All they keep saying is, they obviously understood what was being said here, and we have a hard time with it. The best explanation seems to be that around all of the walls, and the second verse includes the wall and the land around it in the 2,000 cubit. Uh, whatever the situation is, they were to be given a piece of land around the walls of the city in which to pasture their own flocks. Remember, these were a pastoral people. The Israelites were shepherds. They herded sheep and goats and cattle. And every tribe had these animals, and even the tribe of Levi did. It was a basic sustenance for their lifestyle. 
And so even the Levites were to be given this land out around where they could uh, graze their animals without transgressing on the tribal land in which the city was located. And so this, this area out around, whether it be a thousand, a thousand cubits would be about 1,500 feet out from the wall. Now that's not a huge area, but you have to remember we're talking about relatively small towns. We're talking about small numbers of people. And so it probably would have been adequate for them. What we discover here is in the passage, it says that every tribe was to give up some of their land for these cities of the Levites. No tribe was to say, no, no, we don't want them here. Every tribe was to be given, giving some cities to the tribe of Levi. And they should consider it a blessing to do so. Now, if you look at the total number, the total number is given as 48. There were 12 tribes plus the tribe of Levi, which was the 13th tribe. So there were 12 tribes. You divide 12 into 48, goes in very nicely four. So the average tribe would give up four cities to the Levite nation. However, the scripture says the larger tribes would give up more, the smaller tribes would give up less. So let's say the tribe of Judah would give up five cities, the tribe of Simeon would give up three cities, something uh, along that nature. It's not explicitly spelled out here, even though we do, and, and later on when we get to the study of, uh, it's very interesting that the pastor is going to be uh, beginning to preach on Joshua pretty soon. And we'll be getting to Joshua when we finish Deuteronomy. It won't be next week, of course. But <laughs> Joshua does deal with a lot of those details in terms of where the cities were located. And I'll be reading a passage a little bit later which points out the cities of refuge. But what is interesting is we have statistics in the book of Numbers for how many there were in the tribe of Levi. And if you figure that number and divide it by 48, it really comes out to slightly less than 1,000 persons per city. So as I've said before, you don't really understand the word city as it's given here in the Old Testament in the same context that we think of city today. You know, we think of San Francisco as a city. Well, there, were more there are more people living in San Francisco than there, greater San Francisco anyway, than there were in the whole nation of Israel at that time. And so what we're talking about are, we would call towns or maybe even villages. And, and the word village, of course, is used in the scripture too. So an uh, average of 1,000 each. It, it wouldn't be the same, of course. Uh, some of the cities of refuge, such as Hebron, uh, would have been larger. But uh, nevertheless, that would be more or less the average as we look at it here. Well, let's go on uh, with verse 9 of chapter 35. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And the cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. And the cities which you shall give shall be your cities, six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. There to be the cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel, Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. What we have here in this passage is another expression of one of the attributes of God, and that is the attribute of justice. If God is anything, God is just. 
We look at life around us and we say we live in an unjust world, and we certainly do. We, we have these silly trials that go on forever and ever, and they have hung juries, and we go on and do something else. And the, the thought keeps coming to my mind is, that person may escape prosecution here, but they will stand before the Divine One who makes no errors and with whom nothing is forgotten. And, and that is far more serious than any prosecution they could face here. But they don't know that, or certainly they ignore that. God is just. The penalty given for killing another human being outside of the framework of war, which is not included in this discussion in this passage, the uh, penalty for killing another human being was execution. But it's obvious that some people might kill another person and, it, and they're not really worthy of execution because it, was, it would be unjust to execute them because of the, you know, the, what it was involved in the killing of another person. And so God provided a way by which someone who killed unintentionally could escape retribution. And these were the cities of refuge. Now you might say, if I kill somebody, if I had been living in those days and I had killed somebody and I had to flee to a city of refuge, you know, that's going to be a difficult task. Well, you know, it's not like if a city of refuge in the United States would be, let's say, oh, what city should I use? <laughs> uh, let's say Helena, Montana, you know. If I had to flee to Helena, Montana and there were no automobiles, trains, or planes, uh, it would be a bit of a task. But you have to remember, we're talking about a dinky, dinky little land. I mentioned to you this before, that you can put Canaan into California 20 times. So we're talking about a small land, about the size of one of our counties on an average. So it wasn't quite so difficult for them. A true murderer is defined in verses 16 through 21, which I haven't read, which basically says that anyone who uses a weapon or kills intentionally is a murderer. This passage is dealing with those who kill unintentionally, accidentally, what we would call manslaying, and even is called manslaying in this particular passage. Someone who murders under the biblical definition is to be executed by the blood avenger. The blood avenger was something that the scripture simply takes into account as existing. The scripture does not create the institute of blood avenger, institution of blood avenger. It was part of the societal norm of those days. It was practiced not only in the Israelite nation, but in surrounding nations. And that is, if someone murders someone of your family, one of your family members is designated as the blood avenger. And that person's responsibility is, is to slay the murderer. Now, of course, we know this exists in some primitive areas. And it goes on ad infinitum. You kill one of their tribe, they kill one of your tribe, and you have to avenge that. You kill one of their tribe, and da, 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 da. And you wonder why it is their populations have never grown, you know, and their, their civilizations have never proceeded ahead. Well, you keep wiping them out, they aren't going to grow very fast. But that is not what happens here. Because the blood avenger was an officially understood institution. And when the blood avenger carried out his task, no one was to seek retribution against him because this was an act of justice. And it ended right there. And it did not go any further. 
Well, let's see how this all works out here. I'm not going to read verses 16 through 22 because they simply tell us what is a murderer. A murderer is someone who lies in wait, who kills somebody because he hates him, or uses a weapon, period. Stick, stone, metal. Any kind of a weapon makes you a murderer in the eyes of Scripture. Verse 22, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or with any deadly object of stone without seeing it dropped on him so that he died while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. And the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of refuge to which he fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was appointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the border of the city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, the blood of, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he, that is the blood avenger, shall not be guilty of the blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. This passage gives to us the rules governing, governing the function of the cities of refuge. If someone kills someone by accident or in unintentional, in, in a moment of passion, self-defense or whatever, this would be considered unintentional manslaying. That person can legitimately flee to the city of refuge. The blood avenger will call for justice. And what will happen is the, the slayer will remain in the city of refuge until the people can meet together and hold court. Now, we aren't given the details of the court, but the congregation would meet. And the congregation would be given the details of what had happened. And the judgment would be made by the people in assembly. And if the killing were ruled to be unpremeditated and unintentional or unintentional, then the person would be allowed to remain in the city of refuge without retribution. If the judgment came that it was an intentional killing or it, you know, it was non-accidental, there was premeditation involved here, then the person would not be allowed to remain in the city of refuge. In fact, if they could judge that he had killed violently with, with wrong motives, he wasn't even to be allowed into the city of refuge in the first place. Uh, then he would be turned over to the blood avenger who would execute that person. Now, if you were judged to have unintentionally or accidentally killed another person or in self-defense you killed another person and you were remaining in the city of refuge, you had to live there until the high priest at that time died, which could mean who knows what, you know. You might be in the unfortunate situation of having killed somebody just after a new high priest is appointed and he's 38, you know you might end up in the city of refuge for a very long time. Or, of course, on the other side, it might be a very short time. Whatever the case was, this was the law. It was the law ordained by God. And, of course, there, was many reason, there were many reasons behind it. Part of it, of course, was certainly for the fact that as the person lived in the city of refuge, he was removed from the uh, site of the aggravation in the first place, and people would be able to cool off, forget, and forgive. 
and hopefully life would return to some semblance of normal. And then later the person would return. He would be allowed after the high priest died to return to his family, return to his normal function, and there was to be no further uh, issue having to do with it. It was all said and done. It was completed. The book of Joshua tells us the names of the cities that were to be these cities of refuge. Let me just turn there briefly, um, chapter 20. In verses 7 to 9, Joshua 20, verse 7, So they set apart, apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali. So that was way up in the north. And Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. That was down, not quite midway, but close to midway. And Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. That was in the south. So you have one way up in the north, one more or less in the middle, and one in the south, okay? And then beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated one in Bezer on the plain of the tribe of Reuben, that would be down in the south, and Ramoth in Gilead, that would be more or less in the middle of the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan of the tribe of Manasseh, that would be up in the north. So you had cities on both sides, in the north, in the middle, and in the south. So that really, nobody probably had to travel more than maybe 25, 30 miles from wherever they were living to reach a city of refuge. That's not too bad. A person can, hoofing it, can, can walk that far in one day. You may remember that when they established the California missions, the California missions were to be set up according to Junipero Serra's uh, idea, one day's horse ride apart, and that is horse walk, you know, 30 miles approximately apart, or walking traveler. So it would have been within a day uh, that a person could reach a city of refuge on whichever side of the Jordan he was. And in many cases, it would have been far less time to achieve that focus. Well, let's go on because the next passage in uh, Numbers is very crucial in understanding the importance of all of this discussion of manslaying. Verse 29, And these things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generation, generations and all your dwellings. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Obviously, there's no plea bargaining, there's no reduction of penalty upon testimony or whatever. Moreover, verse 32, and you shall not take ransom for him who has fled to the city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. This is a very, very important passage from the book of Numbers. It makes it very clear that murder is not to be tolerated in the Israelite community. A suspected murderer was to be tried before the congregation. 
And if he is convicted upon the testimony of two or more witnesses. Now you have to think about this in, in some detail and know that it would have been pretty difficult in those days in many ways because they didn't have the forensics that we have. You know, you didn't have fingerprints, you didn't have, you know, gunpowder stains and all the rest of the things that are used today to try to prove that someone did or didn't kill. It would be, of course, a very, very difficult thing if somebody, like when Cain slew Abel, right? They were way out in the boondocks here. And probably no one witnessed except, of course, Almighty God. And, and that would be a role that is not spoken here, but would be played. These are the people of God. And God is the one who is superintending all that's going on. So that in the case of a murder where there were no witnesses, what's going to happen? How in the world can you deal with this issue? Well... You remember what happened to Achan when Achan uh, stole the things at the, uh, at the conquest of Jericho after God had put the ban on Jericho? Nothing from Jericho could be kept by anybody. And Achan kept some of the stuff and put it under his tent. How did they find out? God said, take this tribe, take this family, take this man. Well, you know, when you're dealing with God, you've got another issue here to deal with. But anyway, the details were that a person who was convicted on the testimony of two or more witnesses was to be summarily executed. You know, put him in prison for X number of years or, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff. You just deal with them right now. You deal with the issue. No ransom, cash payment of any kind was to be accepted in place of the execution or in place of putting the person in the city of refuge. You could not buy your way out, which, of course, helped to... Uh, uh, level things out and make a difference between the rich and the poor. Today in our society, if you're wealthy, you can get away with literally murder. If you're poor, forget it. <laughs> you know, you've had it. Justice is not very blind in our country, unfortunately, or in the world for that matter. Only with God is it absolutely right. The reason for capital punishment in the case of murder. And, and this needs to be discussed because, as you well know, we have all this issue going around in our country about whether we should have capital punishment or whether we should not have capital punishment, you know. And, and there are many people running around saying that capital punishment is an evil. Well, verses 33 and, verse 30, verses 33 and 34 uh, give us the reason for this. God declares that the blood of the murdered person pollutes the land. This is, of course, spiritual defilement. It doesn't mean that the molecules of hemoglobin or whatever in the soil do something and plants grow crooked. It doesn't have anything to do with that. <clears throat> it has to do with spiritual defilement as God looks down upon his people. The same term of pollution is used many times in Scripture. For example, in Isaiah, we read these words, The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the law, violated the statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. So how is the land polluted? By simple disobedience to the law of God. Jeremiah refers to the land being polluted through idolatry. And then we have a very graphic passage in uh, Psalm 106 that deals with pollution of the land. It's, it's a very sad and tragic passage, but let me read from verse 34. Psalm 106, verse 34. Speaking of Israel, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, 
but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Today we have a very strong environmental movement in our country and around the world. The greening of the world and the greening of America and whatever else. Some of us, I, I shouldn't say some of us, but some people of course deprecate them as tree huggers and others think that they're the saints of the world. They're very concerned about the pollution of the air and the water and the land. And that is not to say that that is not a concern that we should all have. God does not ask us to go out and pollute the land in that sense. But there is a greater pollution of the land which is occurring and those people don't give a rip about it. In fact, they're probably very strong supporters of much of what is actually polluting the land. And that is the injustice that rolls across this land. The injustice of the murder of 35 million unborn children, which many of these environmentalists will say that's good because it means less people to pollute the land. And they got everything all screwed backwards, is what they have. We should protect the land, but we need to start with justice in the land, because that's the pollution that matters. That's the pollution that br brings divine judgment. God can clean up the rest of it through us and by whatever method He will choose. When Jesus Christ comes back and sets up His millennial reign, this world's going to get cleaned up. I think it's going to be cleaned up by divine power. So, I, you know, even though I think we need to be concerned about the environment, that better not be the focus of our lives as Christians, because we have a greater uh, issue that we have to deal with, and that is justice. God wants justice to roll across the land. You know, what has God asked of you as His people to support and, and, and to be just? And, and this is the greater pollution that is destroying this country and destroying the world, the vileness and the injustice of what's occurring all across the land, and, and much of it has to do with the, the, the crushing of the poor and the arrogance of the rich. Uh, you know, we often, when we read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we only think of the moral immorality of the, of the homosexuality, but Scripture also teaches us it was because they were arrogant and unwilling to help others that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 33 of this passage tells us that there is no expiation for the blood shed on the soil of the land except the blood of the manslayer. That is the only atonement that God would allow to free the land from the pollution of the dead person. To take another person's life in the context of this passage is to usurp God's prerogative. God is the author of life. And God alone is responsible for taking life. The person who takes human life into his own hands to destroy it is usurping God's authority. And by doing so, he is demonstrating no respect of God. That is the ultimate bottom line. No respect of God. Murder is like a cancer. And if the murderer is not removed, his cancer will spread and it will become widespread. That is why execution was ordered for the murderer. It's, it's, to me, it's such a ridiculous argument that people make that capital punishment does not really deal with the issue of murder. Well, I'm telling you, an executed murderer will not murder again. 
I mean, there is no question about that. And if it becomes pretty cause and effect directly related, people get the point after a while, no matter what anyone argues to the contrary. Verse 34 of this passage is also a real eye-opener. At least it is to those who are complacent and cavalier in their ideas about God and their attitude towards God. Yahweh warned his people, they were not to defile the land upon which they lived because it was a land in which he dwelt. I mean, if God was transcended out there in outer space and he didn't give a rip what was going on on this planet, who cares how much blood is spread, spilled? It wouldn't be a, uh, you know, wouldn't be a cause of his concern. But as we read this passage, we begin to understand how the physical and the spiritual are intertwined. You cannot literally separate the two. We have a tendency to do that. This is the secular and this is the divine, the, you know, the spiritual. And, you know, in the Catholic Church, they even call the regular priests are called the secular priests. And those who live in monasteries are the regular, are the, uh, you know, the more holy priests. Well, that's not what God says. The pagan gods of the people that surrounded Canaan were often contained in their little temples and their little sanctuaries. And the people understood them. This is my God. See this big ugly statue? That's my God. And he's in this temple. But Yahweh could never be contained in a temple. In fact, Solomon, when he dedicated the temple to God in Jerusalem, he said, The highest heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built, no matter how fine it is, cannot contain God. And yet God in Numbers 35, 34 says, I, Yahweh, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. So how can God, who is greater than the universe, cannot be contained in a tabernacle, say that he's dwelling in the midst of his people? Well, of course, what he meant was that he had entrusted these people with his name. I have put my name here. These are my people. They bear my name. And they're to demonstrate the power of that name by the way they live obediently to me and by their testimony of who I am. Along with his name, of course, came his presence and a manifestation of his power in a special way. So God was there in Israel in a way he was not with other nations. And he did miracles and he blessed them and he protected them and he gave them victory in ways he was not doing with other people because he was in their midst. But that did not mean that he was not in the highest heavens. It did not mean he was uh, far beyond the universe as we understand it. Hence, if Israel became disobedient to the word of God, they defied the Holy Land. And if they defiled the Holy Land, they defiled the name of the one who entrusted them with his name and with the special manifestation of his presence. Why was it a holy land? Because they were a holy people. Why were they a holy people? Because they had been set apart by the holy God. So if they desecrate the land, they deny their reality and they defame the one who authorized them to be his holy people. The application, I think, is obvious. You and I are a part of what is known as the Christian church. Why is it called Christian? Because we are followers of Christ. Who is Christ? The Messiah. The Messiah, Scripture tells us, is Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. 
So we discover the church, like Israel, is the place in which God dwells. Not physically within the walls of this building, but within the lives of his people, individually and corporately. So if the church tolerates sin, complacency, disunity, lovelessness, greed, selfishness, these things in its midst, what is it doing? It's defiling the name of God who gave the name Christ to the church. We are defiling the name of Christ and we're causing the world to not only ignore and revile the church but to ignore and revile the God of the church. That is the great tragedy. If I am looked down upon, that's no big deal. But if my God is looked down upon, that's a big deal. Not because God isn't big enough to handle it, but because that damns the soul of the one who does it. Now you and I do not live in a holy land. The United States is not a holy land. It's a very polluted land. But because the Holy Spirit has been given to every believer, we are, as the true church, a holy nation. And you know this passage, and I'll just read it to you quickly. It spells it out pretty specifically in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, meaning aliens and strangers to the world, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. They may slander you, they may slander me, but as we live faithfully before God, one day, if God opens their eyes, they will see and they will understand that God is glorious and God is true regardless of our weaknesses and our failings. As a holy nation, therefore, we must keep our behavior excellent. That's why as a businessman we have to be impeccably accurate and impeccably honest. We have to do everything in a big way, you know, to be a performer on a stage, not, not television or, or movies, but live stage, you have to do everything big. You can't do it small because nobody will know what you're doing. So you over-exaggerate everything. That's what we have to do as Christians. We have to exaggerate so that the world will get the point. We have to be more honest than the honest people of the world. I could say some other things, but I think I'd step on too many toes, you know, like the speed limit and a few other things. <laughs> Not that I don't go over it. <laughs> But I think we ought to be a little bit more aware of it than maybe um, the people of the world are. Because if we don't, if we uh, tolerate all this pollution, we're defiling his name. Let me um, bring this to a conclusion by reading about the church of Sardis. Now Sardis is a city that um, sorts of ruined today, but it was a great city at one time. It was a city of great wealth, immense wealth. It was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, the most wealthy uh, small country in the world in its time uh, 2,500 years ago. Uh, Sardis eventually, of course, became a part of the Greek world, part of the Roman Empire, and uh, there was a church at Sardis. 
And John, under the inspiration of Christ, wrote a letter in chapter 3 of Revelation to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If therefore you do not, will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. If that isn't a picture of the church in many places in many times, this great institution, yet there are a few genuine believers, but the bulk of the church is dead. Wake up, he says. Wake up, because we're defiling the name of Christ. And you read through the history of Western civilization, you read about the Crusades. These people who went in the name of Jesus and cut people down. I mean, warfare is one thing. Warfare is not in the category of what we're talking about here, but that's not warfare. That's butchery. They had no legitimate reason to do what they did. In the name of Christ, they were cutting people's head off indiscriminately. And that defiled the name of Christ. And, and that's one of the reasons why the Christians and the Muslims have such a hard point of rapport. Because there's been so much killing on both sides viciously in the name of their gods. And yet their gods are supposed to be merciful. You know, Allah is supposed to be merciful. And of course, the God of Christ is, most, is the merciful God, and yet no mercy has been displayed. So it is our task to, in a big way, make the claim of Christ honored and exalted and not defamed as we function corporately as the church and individually. Well, I didn't get to read the First Thessalonians passage, but you can read it. It basically says that <clears throat> I think that because uh, we are in the year nearly the year 2000, Christ's return is very soon. And coming as a thief in the night is an actual phrase used in that passage, and he uses it in Revelation. So I think there's a way by which these two kind of dovetail together. Next week we'll look at the final chapter of Numbers and then we'll start Deuteronomy.